Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Okay, welcome everyone to the Thailand Update 2021. We have been running the Thailand Update for a few years now. We started it back in 2015, and it's become a kind of popular, regular event. What we've typically done in the past with the Thailand Update is a kind of overview of different things that have been going on in Thailand. We've typically had people talking about politics, about economy, foreign policy, society, justice, media, and a range of issues. We're not quite doing that this year. We decided to focus in on a topic and make this very much a thematic update, which is a little bit different in style from what we've done before. So the theme that we're focusing on today is that of political protests revisited. As most of you following Thailand will know, there were a large number of demonstrations that took place last year, many of them inspired and initiated by student groups that called for the resignation of the government, that called for revision of the constitution, and after the 10th of August, in a, a very, very important protest event that took place uh, at the Rangsit campus of Tamasat University, they are also calling for reform of the monarchy and breaking a lot of taboos in terms of previous discussions about Thailand. So we wanted to focus this year on the question of protests and bring together a number of people who've been working on related issues. One of the proximate reasons for that is that along with Aim Simpeng, Sawani Alexander and Ganokrat Lurchusakun, we were able to put together a special section of critical Asian studies. So four articles about the 2020 protests are already out. This brings me to an incredibly important book that appeared last year, which is Moments of Silence by Tong Shaiwan Ishikun, who's, who's here with us today. It's a book that focuses on, the, and the subtitle tells it all, really, the unforgetting of the October 6th, 1976 massacre in Bangkok. It's Hawaii University Press book. Tong Shaiwan Ishikun needs no introduction to most of you. I know it's a cliche to say that, but in this case, it's really true. He's such a, a huge figure in Thai studies. We all know his incredibly important book, Siam Mapped, and we've been eagerly awaiting this very important book, which in many ways, helps us to think about and to understand what has been going on in Thailand more recently in a different way. So there's a kind of synchronicity about the appearance of this book in 2020 and the re-emergence of student protests in 2020 that made me feel like we really, really had to bring Tong Shai here. He is, as many of you know, Professor Emeritus of History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And we're going to have a chance to talk about his book and also to talk about how themes and issues in this book relate to things that have been going on in Thailand more recently. So Tong Shai, welcome to the Thailand Update. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. This is a great privilege and something I've been looking forward to for a long time. We've mentioned the book, and I know you've given a number of other talks about the book. I would, if people really want to hear Tong Shai talk at length about the book, I'd recommend the University of Michigan talk, which I think you did in January, and that, that is on mm-hmm. YouTube. And there you show a lot of images and talk through the book in a much more systematic way than perhaps we'll have time to do today. But for those who aren't yet in, in a position to say that they've read the book. Maybe you could tell us a bit about it. I mean, it's a highly personal book, but it's not primarily a memoir. Can you explain how the writing of Moments of Silence came about? It has been a long process. I have in mind for a long time. The first rule I have in mind, 
I'm not going to write a memoir. And second thing is that I'm not going to write what happened on that morning. I want to try to talk about the massacre in such a way that, I mean, I believe other people have talked about what happened in the past some years. When I first thought about it, nobody talked about it at all. This is about 20 years ago. But even that, I think, is not the place where uh, I want to write anything that people could say that kind of typical explanation of a massacre, what political context, who did what. I try to avoid that. At the same time, I have this idea in my all the time about memory studies. That's the influence from World War II anniversary, Holocaust anniversary. So that time, I thought back about what happened in Thailand that time, 20 years ago, now 40 years ago. So I have been doing this for about two decades, slowly. At the same time, this process, parallel with the process that I, I would call memory project for October 6th massacre, try to dig up more information, try to learn more about relative, try to find the body of my friend. If you, if people read uh, one chapter, it's about finding the body of my friend. That's all the same process of writing the book, the same process of memory project in actual memory project in Thailand. At the same time, it's, it's hard to say, but let's say to make it short, it's the same process myself. You can say, somebody says a catharsis, that's fine. But it's the same process myself of making sense of what happened, making sense to myself. Yeah, that's a kind of a, a great summary of how it comes across to me as a reader. I guess to understand what's what's in the book, and it's it's a big book, it's a long book, there are 10 core chapters. We may not have time to talk about all of those chapters right here and now, but perhaps I could focus in on three key words that appear in the title that in many ways help to define, uh, in, at least to my understanding, what the book is about. And the first, it's in the subtitle, not in the not in the not before the colon, but it still it leaps out, of course, and overpowers all the other words in the title. Is the word massacre at the core of this book? There's a terrible episode of violence that looms large in Thailand's modern political history that you were centrally involved in. How does the book help us to understand that violence differently? I'm not sure we understand the political mass violence in Thailand that much, even though it happened too many times over the past 50 years. I mean, not just the October 73, 76, the May 92 and then 2010. But if you count, Duncan, you're more familiar with this. If you count all the major mass violence in the South, I would say maybe a dozen over the past 50 years. But typical explanation usually focuses on political context and action, who did what. I think if we take a different approach, in fact, such as you did in your book on Thailand South, tearing apart the land, we step back and, and looking from a broader perspective, we can see some common threats across those political violence, mass violence in Thailand. Although people talk about it, but let's say, I don't think it's enough. There are far more to examine, far more to, to talk about that. I take that approach to see the October 6th, not just the political factors. In the book, I focus on what happened and political factors mainly in the first two, maybe only one chapter, chapter two. The rest of them is more about the silence, about the enigmatic, effect the long-lasting impact of violence such a scale without justice or closure. It's about changing memory 
and many reasons for silence for many people. So in, in other words, October 6th massacre is not just political, but ideological and cultural ones too. For example, the palace action and inaction on that day is very much ideological and cultural factors are part of that, that make the palace grow palace action in action in the massacre. So I, I hope that the book says something more, ask something more about those factors, non-political factors. And I hope that contributes something to people think about other massacre, other mass violence in, in that way too. Right. I mean, the massacre is the word that, that looms largest in the title, but it's probably the second largest word right there before the colon is, is the word silence. Why has there been so much silence even to this day about exactly what happened on the 6th of October, 1976? I think first fear, fear for retaliation by the royalist state. Second, shame, or at least uneasiness, discomfort among the victims, among the perpetrators, and among the public, and the public too, a discomfort to talk about it for different reasons, of course. The uneasiness of for each group may be, may be down to every individual's for different reasons. And then the third one is evasion for the sake of superficial and immediate peace, which in Thailand they call reconciliation. I think those three fear, shame, and evasiveness for different reasons at different times, at different degrees, to different groups, depends on the changing political context over for the past 40 years after the massacre. That, that's the main thing, main content of the book. Which naturally leads us to the, the third question, which is this word unforgetting. I guess I puzzle over the word slightly because I wonder what's the difference between unforgetting and remembering and also the moments. I guess there are moments of silence. There's a moment of unforgetting. Could you say something about this word unforgetting and in what sense you'd say that the 76 massacre has been or was unforgotten and when that took place? I intentionally, I didn't use the word unforgotten because people are too familiar with the word. I used the word unforgetting. I'm not sure if this is good English, <laughs> but the word unforgetting would be a bit disruptive to the common familiarity with unforgotten. Right. Disruptive because I want to emphasize the condition of memory, which cannot be voiced out the inability to articulate the memory in public. So it's not fully remembering or fully mm -hmm. forgetting. No, it's a kind of emphasize the discomfort, the conspicuous state of memory between remembering and forgetting. The kind of state of memory in between. And in my argument, I hope it is clear in my argument that it's visible and loud, but it's also absence and a lack of voice. So inability to articulate, but people know it is. Inability to create a systematic or let's say a clear narrative of what happened and why it's painful, but people recognize that, yes, it is. That kind of condition. We can think about Silence in music or theme, those I would call meaningful silence. So I, I want to focus, or focus on, on, on that, that silence of that kind. That's why I call the unforgetting rather than unforgotten. I believe that the October 6th memory, the unforgetting, the silence of it is a haunting condition. And I believe that, in fact, it's common to every society. But I think it's more striking in an authoritarian society in which 
weapons may not be the primary means of control, but that society with strong ideological and cultural repression, such as Thailand, I think silence of that of this kind, a liminal state between remembering and forgetting, mm-hmm. would be more in place. Yes, I was actually about to follow up by asking you whether this was exactly what you're saying, a liminal space between memory and forgetting. And who is in the liminal space? Is everybody in that space or the state side as well in the space or is it the participants? I wouldn't say everybody, of course, because not not many people have memory of it. I would say people who have memory of it, which means I argue that a lot. I mentioned in in the book, I mentioned, I, I have examples, but let's say, in to, to generalize, I would say both the victims and perpetrators for different reasons. And also the public means, I'm not sure who, but let's say a large number of people who know the incident, who remember the incident, but it doesn't mean everybody, of course. So they all kind of in the liminal state, such as, for example, for the victims, they don't want to voice out because they're not sure the retaliation for the families of the dead. They're not the same victim as the ex-leftists, but they're also silent. As recently as 2016, when, I mean, I have a team of research assistants Mm -hmm. try to contact them. Mm -hmm. Uh, So many of them still refuse to interview, refuse to give, to, to talk to us because they're still... Uh, in fear. For the perpetrators, over time, political situation has changed. I think they know, they know that the public, the society at large, did not support the action on that day, did not support the killing. But as far as I have talked to 20 people, former enemy, you might say a former mm-hmm. adversary, yes. none of them feel shame. None of them feel remorse. They just know that it's not time for them to speak up. They boasted in the first year after the massacre, mm-hmm. boasted of their accomplishment. But since then, they have gradually into silence until when I met them in the mid 2000s, a group of real killers, the real killer who boasted about, yes, they are the real killer. They still laugh at it, but let's say they won't speak out. Many of them, including a number of red gores, the infamous group that people blame, blame them a lot. I mean, attribute the killing to them. In fact, they argue that they didn't do. They feel betrayed. Betrayed because of what? Because they did the right thing. They did good things, saved the country. But right. the public, right. the society never honored them. Yes. So yeah. they began to silence. I mean, I hadn't planned to ask you this, but now you're talking about it. I mean, what was it like to talk to those people with that kind of view and given your own history with them? Oh, it. <laughs> maybe maybe we don't have enough time. No, it's a hard. All, all I can say is that there are a number of questions I should have asked them. I want mm-hmm. to ask them more, and my assistant at the time encouraged me to go back. And in the end, I refused. I said, right. "That's enough. I can't do anything." Yes, understandable. <laughs> yeah, very understandable. Apart from the three keywords in the title, I would invite anybody who's interested in the book to look at the three main components of the cover. Mm-hmm. That's how you can conceptualize the book as well. The hanging, yes. the palace, and the emptiness on the cover. That's yes. it. You know, it had been a kind of um, cliche to say, well, students used to be at the center of political protest and and political activity in Thailand in the 1970s. And after 1976, they ceased to perform that kind of role. And most of the protests that we had since students didn't play a leading part in, in, in those protests. It really makes us 
ask questions about what were the parallels, the similarities, the differences with earlier events. So could you tell us from your own knowledge and, and research, and of course, having been there as, as one of the leaders of that protest, what was the nature of the political protest that you and your fellow students were engaged in during the period that led up to the 6th of October massacre? What were you protesting about on the 5th of October exactly? All I can say is just one point. If we talk about comparison between 40 years ago and mm-hmm. today, the movement today is not formed or inspired by a systematic ideology like the one in the 1970s. The current movement, in my view, is primarily the responses to the hyper-royalist authoritarian condition in Thailand. Not only in politics, but the hyper-royalist condition, authoritarian condition that I talk about is pervasive in every social institution, in everyday life. I think the movement today is a response, it's a reaction to that. The movement 44 years ago, or even more than that, in, since 1973, it may start as an as a anti-military, but by 1976, it's a movement that was inspired, influenced pretty much by an ideology, mm-hmm. by the Maoist ideology. Yeah. That is a major difference. This nature, the, current, the nature of the current movement, uh, I, I believe, facilitates or allows them to become much less organized in which this is quite contrast to the strong but rigid one in 1976. In other words, I think the government often try to find a driving force, the people or person or organization, the hidden conspiratorial movement behind mm-hmm. the student. I think the driving force behind the protest movement today is a royalist authoritarian mm-hmm. regime itself. Absolutely. And... Uh... As you're already hinting, I mean, monarchy has loomed very large in the 2020 protests, as I said, from the August 10th protest at, at the Tamasat Rangsit campus when the 10, 10 demands on the 10th of August about Rama the 10 uh, uh, announced. Monarchy is also a sort of a constant presence in your book. There's that, as you just noted, the little picture of the palace in the bottom left-hand corner of the front cover. Was monarchy something that student protesters were directly concerned with in 1976? Were you thinking about monarchy or were you thinking about other questions in those days? A lot. <laughs> <laughs> A lot. Well, we didn't, we didn't say much. Right. In the movement at uh, that time, 73 to 76, I think the, the student movement even popped more than student Mm-hmm. extend to other groups in the society. We started off as an anti-military rule, but around 1975, mid-1975, to be more precise, the movement turned left, very left, partly informed by the knowledge, the awareness of the role of the monarchy, and partly both cause and effect. I mean, partly informed by, and also after that, we pay attention more to the, the last I mean, of the activists and the public know about the monarchy's politics, monarchy strong anti-communist, even anti-democratic politics. We talk about the monarchy a lot among ourselves, among the activists. And yes, we did talk about the monarchy in public forum, such as in songs, in public discussion and so on, but most of the time in coded language or evasively. We didn't do it explicitly as the protest today because at the time, I think, I still think it's right. We understand that 
with the strong royalist anti-communist atmosphere at the time, mm -hmm. if we cross such a line, it because it jeopardized our own movement. That's it. That's why we talk a lot, yes. but rarely explicitly, almost not explicitly. And another theme that comes out very strongly in your book that, that resonates with those of us who've been following more recent developments in Thailand is this media problem, distortion, misrepresentation, what we would nowadays call disinformation, which you very much faced as a movement. Do you see similarities uh, between what's going on now? Or do you think the mainstream media is now better or, or much the same as it was in 1976? <laughs> we talk about mainstream, right? Yes. Talk about TV and major dailies. Okay. I think the mainstream media in Thailand, especially the electronic media, the radio at the time is radio and TV. Now radio may not have more much influence. The TV to some extent, to a great extent, I believe. The mainstream media in Thailand either belong to the military or the government. So they all belong to the state. Mm -hmm. Even the one run by private companies, they rent or they lease, they get the concession to run those media. So all controlled by the state. And in October 6, in 76, the military took it back and controlled the whole media scape in the country for days, for I think for months. Even the daily, the printed media, they are under control of the state. So I think it's the same situation then and now to the extent that I believe this one, I never do research. In fact, I read your books, Duncan, your works are on the media. I believe that submissiveness and working, I mean, operating in fear is integral part of the media culture. Submissiveness and fear is part of the media culture in Thailand. Their behavior, a lack of professionalism is horrible today as it was in the past. There's one difference, in my opinion. In the past, the media had resisted the control much more than today. I think today the mainstream media has surrendered its professionalism and its responsibility to the public, even before any threat from the state, because their interest and, and their ideology are in line with the, with the ones of the state. So I, as an observer, I think threat and control is not much needed when collusion and collaboration prevails. They don't need that. So the state today didn't resist. They become part of that. I don't know, people call it the state or civil society. If, if the old-fashioned old theoretical thinking separate between the two, in this case, I think this main function of civil society into the media. It's part of the state by collusion and by collaboration. The difference today is availability of the social media beyond the state's control. Well, I could say a lot myself about this, obviously. Yeah, you know, I guess, uh, and I haven't been in Thailand the past few months, but what people tell me is that if I had been, uh, if you didn't know, then you probably wouldn't be aware from mainstream media what the 10 demands that the students articulated on the 10th of August were. What are the 10 points that need to be reformed about the monarchy? Some reference might be made to monarchy reform, but the 10 points printed in mainstream media or announced on mainstream TV hasn't really happened. You've had to go to alternative media to get yeah. information. Yeah. And that's, that's very sad in 2020 and 2021, isn't it? I mean, another central question that comes up and there's obviously must be in our minds now, again, is that of impunity. 
that those responsible for massacring civilians have never been brought to justice in Thailand. What's the relationship between the culture of impunity that we've seen in 76, 92, 2010 in the South, as you say, and the ways in which the current situation may unfold? Impunity has always been part of the Thai state. I think in Thayer's 2018 book, In Plain Sight, it's about how impunity has been inseparable from development of the Thai state, at least over the past 50, 60 years. She focuses more much on the authoritarian regimes at different times. In my study of Thai legal history, which I presented last year and published last year, impunity is integral to Thai jurisprudence. The whole legal system is built on providing the prerogative. Impunity is a kind of prerogative the state always enjoy. The link between impunity in all those cases because the state always have prerogative. The state know to some extent, to great extent, how to get that impunity. And it looks like in the past seven, eight years, the Prayut regime, I use this word, I know it's Pajak's word, but I use this word in a broader sense than him, than Prayut government, in the sense of people above and behind it, in the sense of beyond the extended regime, I mean, beyond the government, including the court. It looks like the Prayut regime in the past seven years is aware of its prerogative, its privilege, aware of that that they can use impunity. They're shameless. They take advantage of it. That's how they become shameless. It's like Trump. Keep doing what they did, even though it's wrong, shamelessly, because they know that nobody can touch them. And that is worrying for the, the current situation of the student protesters. Yeah, because it's built in the state, it's built in the legal system. They can be pretty sure they're not likely to be called to account for whatever they do. <laughs> in other talks, I know in the, in the Michigan talk, you gave a very intriguing reference to chapter 11. You've talked, we've talked about how the book really has 10 chapters. And you've said that now, after these recent protests and the opening up of previously taboo discussions about monarchy since the um, August 10th um, rally and so on, that you you would, if you went back, write a chapter 11. And at one point you read out, I think it seemed like the opening paragraph of, of chapter 11. Could you explain for people joining us today what, what might be in this chapter 11 of yours? We're hoping there'll be a second edition, including this chapter 11, but perhaps you could give us a further preview. Of Actually, I haven't thought much about what the rest of them. I talk a bit again, talking about the book in particular, and in Thailand, too, talking about the book, I have in mind that, oh, I, I didn't re regret that I, I finished the book in, in before the what, I, what we see in 2020. But had I known or had I delayed the book about a year or two, I would have had the next episode. The book is about the changing memories and silence in the condition of changing political conditions, right? So I would say that the call for reform of the monarchy last year is huge. It's a huge next episode. Had I delayed the book for a couple of years, I it's impossible to miss, to ignore what happened last year. So I have written the first paragraph of chapter 11 yes. <laughs> introducing what happened on August 10th, the day that the student, the protest movement today announced the 10 point 
demand for reform of the monarchy. I would say to keep the book coherent about the haunting memory of the massacre, chapter 11 would explain how the memory of the massacre has contributed to the rise of the youth movement today. I mean, I think on that day, August 10, 2020, when they make announcement of the call for reform, the first paragraph that I explained on the background they showed the film clippings of October 6th. But the song is a song composed by the monarchy. And the song and pictures on the screen are so disjointed. They're disconnected. Right, right. And after that, 10 points demand. So I think October 6th has been one of the entry, put it that way, one of the contribution to the thinking, to the awareness of the problem of the monarchy in Thailand today. I think with the weakening hyper-royalism, the youth of this generation has been receptive to the narrative that counter to the hopeless political conditions that they have experienced in, in, in their young lives. I think, I believe, October 6th as memory is one of those counter-narratives and a powerful one too. So that's how I, I would explain, to keep the book coherent, how the memory contributes to the rise of the of the movement today without trying to suggest that it's the main thing or is the only one. No, 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 no. But it's, I think it's an important one. I would then, the rest of the chapter, I would talk about other massacre, other mass violence briefly in order to urge that we, we mean, I'm not sure who, Thai people, should extend the memory project into other atrocities of the Thai state. I believe that these memory projects have huge impacts, not only politically, but far beyond. In October 6th case, I believe it has impact beyond politics into history. That's why awareness of history today, awareness of the danger and contribution plus and minus of historical knowledge, the awareness about the monarchy, the awareness of uh, impunity is far beyond political actions. I think if, if investigation in memory project is done for the Takbai case, yes. for many other cases in the South, the issue about religion, issues about ethnicity, is about plurality in Thai society. It's not that that those are silenced. No, no, no. Those, but let's say will become much more. I mean, on the agenda, on the social agenda, and especially that as we talk, the need to end impunity in Thailand. We must end it. I, I would put emphasis on that point somewhere in the chapter, maybe at as the end of the book, is that the end of impunity is inseparable from establishment of democracy and rule of law in Thailand. Thank you so much. Yes, you're reminding me that I have long said I was going to go back to Dakbai until that incident, which was so much the start of you know why I wrote Tearing Apart the Land, and I talked to people who were involved in that and caught up in that, and we don't have any systematic, thorough examination and explanation of that incident, and that could easily be uh, another book in itself. And then there are all of the, the other books that we could talk about that need to be written. And as you say, this is this is why we're starting with this <laughs> historical perspective today, which we haven't done in the past with the with the Thailand update. To be fair, we've been guilty of this presentism, and we tried to uh, make amends for that. Well, you've written an in incredibly important book about October 6th and the, the unforgetting, the silence, the massacre. It will be hard for, I'm not sure for how long, but for this kind of issue, impunity, usually, this is the lesson from we learn from other societies, usually the breakthrough come from small cases, 
usually the, the yes. breakthrough can, let's say, it's hard to call for setting up the committee to examine the Takbai massacre, the October 6th massacre is too mm -hmm. hard. But the breakthrough would come from smaller cases, much mm -hmm. smaller cases yes. that brought the state to justice and then extend that. I'm not sure because it depends not only on the cases, it depends on the right moment. It depends on the case that will have huge impact. I'm not sure. But let's say, for example, one case which so far has not been successful. After the initial attempt to fight the case of Tanai Somchai disappearance, mm -hmm. I think that's very huge. That's very important. Yes. That's a case that could send, as uh, you check, impunity privilege, impunity uh, problem in Thailand. But so far, no, the state hold on to its power. It, it didn't crack on it, it. I mean, unsuccessful yet. But let's say my answer would be smaller cases, maybe singular cases, but have huge impact like that. But let's say it's a long fight. Even that case, suppose the nice Chai case was successful. It's still a long way to go because it's in the legal system. Mm -hmm. It's part of the formation of the of the state in the past 50, 60 years. It won't be easy. Yes. I mean, that's a really important point. I mean, to me, the it's another terribly disturbing and, and awful case, but the Wan Chalom case and the way that disappearance was able to capture the imagination of so many young people was a very, very important case. It seemed in some way to, to set the stage for the protests that then begin a, a few weeks later. Sometimes we don't quite know what what the case is going to be that will capture people's imagination rather than other cases. And yet that one, maybe young people could identify with the Wanchalurm in some way that they didn't with other victims. And that, that caused them to mobilize in a very spontaneous way around that issue. I'm afraid we're going to have to bring our conversation to an end. This has been you know, a, a fascinating conversation about some very difficult subjects. I'm really, really happy that we're able to have you here today to join the, the Thailand Update. And thanks so much to you for agreeing to talk to us. Thank, Thank you. you so Thank much. you very much. All right. Thanks a lot. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.